Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is March the 31st, 2020, and this is episode 2,629 of the Survival Podcast. It's the last day of the month. It is the end of the first quarter of 2020. And we're certainly not ending this quarter the way that most of us thought we would, in the middle of a global pandemic with lockdown orders, with social distancing protocols, et cetera, in place. And uh, you, you, you might look at this and, and think, well, we should be in a pause. I think some things are in a pause. I'll give you that. But overall, I'll still ask you, tick-tock, tick-tock, how's, how's that life design, lifestyle design coming along? A lot of you guys are stuck at home. It's a lot of time to think, a lot of time to do the things that you say you've not had time to do. I know a lot of you are still working, and God bless those of you that are. A lot of you guys are like me. You work from home, so you just your life has not shifted much. But a lot of you really have been sent home. Uh, we can hate the government if you want to. We can think spending money the way that they're doing right now is terrible. But honestly, if you were laid off, you're going to get as much, or in some cases more money, every week uh, coming up very shortly uh, than you were getting when you were working, as much or more in some cases. Um, so I don't think you should go piss that money away. But if there's things you can do that are truly investments in your life and your lifestyle, it's time to make them. Education is always free if you know where to look, and there's plenty of time to look now, too. There's so much you can be doing. But another thing you have to think about is feeding yourself and feeding your family. And many of you guys are good preppers. You, you'll, uh, you'll appreciate the quote of the day we have today in just a moment before we introduce our special guest. And that means that you have a lot of stuff stored up to eat. And we do a lot of eat what you store and store what you eat if you follow what we teach here. But some of you probably have big buckets full of wheat berries or things like that. And you might be thinking, well, maybe now is a good time to start using at least some of it. I mean, some of you are thinking, oh, I can go to the store or whatever. Some of you are also thinking, well, I don't need to go. But how do I use some of this stuff? We're bringing uh, our old friend back on, Chef Keith Snow. Uh, Keith took a job uh, about a year ago, and that kind of had him step away from expert counsel. But he's remained a good friend of the show. He's been working with us one way or another, I think like eight and a half, nine years now. And he's coming on today to talk about his e-course called Food Storage Feast. And he's just going to give you a bunch of different ways that you can use a lot of this food that people are sto have stored up and, and eat really well even in the middle of Apocalypse 2020. So we'll have Keith on in just a minute. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today. Man, I've heard so many people in the past month tell me, thank you so much for introducing me to ButcherBox. And I'll tell you what I did this last month, man. I went and I loaded that box up. They had to send me two boxes. This time, and I've been asked not to overly push ButcherBox because they're worried about taking care of their existing customers, but they are a sponsor, so they get their weekly mention. And I'm going to tell you that ButcherBox is just a great source of meat all the time, and those of us who are members right now are reaping a big reward because ButcherBox believes in taking care of their new customer or their existing customers first. Now, I think they're still taking new customers, so you can go look at signing up. You can get a discount from MSB. But, boy, I'll tell you, those of you guys that signed up, aren't you glad you stayed? Especially those of you who got on board with some of the lifetime deals, like lifetime ground beef, lifetime chicken wings, and things like that. 
Man, I am very, very excited to have ButcherBox as a sponsor, and I'm very excited to be a customer as well. Check them out today, and you'll find out why I'm willing to take payment from them and meet. Uh, next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Like I said, education goes along with stuff in a big way. One of the best educational publications out there is Backwoods Home Magazine. They were easy to accept as a sponsor. Why? Because I first subscribed to them in 1993. Yes, I'm older than dirt. I admit, at least some dirt. And, uh, you know, fresh-made dirt anyway. I'm way older than And, uh, you know, I've stayed a subscriber of Backwoods Home since 1993. Do a little math there. What is that, 27 years? If, if I stay a customer or something for 27 years, I don't think I need to endorse it anything more than that. I mean, I stay to pay. When I, when I took them on as a sponsor, they're like, well, we could convert your subscription to free. I, I, I'll pay for it. I wouldn't ask my audience to pay for something I wouldn't pay for. So check them out today, Backwoods Home Magazine at backwoodshome.com. With that, before I bring our special guest, Keith Snow, on, let's talk about kind of the, the benefits of being a prepper and how they're showing right now and how, you know, I always told the story of the grasshopper and the ant. And I'm not a big biblical person, but I quote the truth wherever I find it. And there's a lot of truth in the Bible. Even if you're not religious, there's a lot of truth in the Bible, especially in the book of Proverbs. And the, the story of the ant and the grasshopper, which is an Aesop fable, comes from Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. And this is what that, that says in, in the Bible. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provisions for the harvest. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Now, I think some of you are probably going, hey, they didn't know. Ants have a queen. You know what? The queen's not in charge. Ants and bees are very closely related. You ask any beekeeper what the queen is in a hive, they'll tell you she's not the ruler. She's a slave to the collective of the hive. And come on, we're trying to teach people with analogy here, even in the Bible. That's the reason it's such a powerful proverb. The concept that the ant is prepared for winter is very valuable. But we as humans need to realize winter will come every season. We know when it comes. We know when it gets cold. We know that that type of winter. But the lessons in the Bible, the lessons of Aesop's fables, are much bigger than that. See, winter can come anytime. Winter, in the metaphorical way, can come anytime. We're in the middle of a humanity's winter right now. I do think things are going to get better faster than a lot of people think, but they're still going to be tough for a while. The person who has behaved like an ant right now is far better suited to life as it is than the one who has lived life like a grasshopper. And I'm hoping the grasshoppers that get through this relatively okay will realize that unlike the, wor the natural world, where the grasshopper is, if you're born a grasshopper, you're doomed to be a grasshopper. As humans, we choose whether we are grasshoppers or ants. And I'm hoping more and more people will choose to be ants as we go forward. With that, let's bring our special guest on uh, right now. Uh, this is a professional chef, good friend of the show. I think he first reached out to me back in 2011, if, it, if I can remember right. We've done Thanksgiving specials together. He's been on the Expert Council for a, a long time. He is a prepper himself. In fact, he'll tell you about that a little bit more and how he found TSP in the first place. Um, but he is a guy that practices what he preaches, and he's a hell of a good cook. He's here to talk to us today about cooking from your stores. With that, let me say, hey, Keith, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Yeah, Jack, thanks for having me. It's great to be back on. 
What has been going on? Tell people who you are for those that maybe are new to the show. We've, for obvious reasons, attracted a lot of new listeners. Um, kind of to give people a little bit of background as a chef. And also, what's been going on with Keith Snow other than surviving the apocalypse in recent times? <laughs> sure. Well, I uh, actually grew up in the Northeast and uh, kind of fell into the restaurant business by accident at a very young age, about 14, washing dishes. And that kind of started um, a, a long career. Uh, I never really was focused on restaurants. I just sort of worked in them to make money. But uh, through the whole time, I was learning and growing, and um, I stayed focused on the culinary business. I did take a short break and developed some food products through the years, but always found myself back in restaurants, eventually working my way up to executive chef of a major Colorado ski resort. And uh, that was a really, really big operation. And while I was there, I started to get into the media and um, did all kinds of TV and print and all lots of interviews. And and eventually when we had our first daughter, we were living at you know 10,000 feet above sea level. I thought, yeah, this isn't ideal. So we... Um, Well, I decided to go and purchase a farm in western North Carolina, which my wife wasn't really uh, – I wouldn't say she wasn't on board with it, but she didn't realize it was would move as fast as uh, it did. And I flew out there from Colorado, looked at four or five pieces of land, and basically made an offer on one while I was there. And lo and behold, about eight months later, we um, <clears throat> moved on to a, a, a piece of dirt, which was um, in horse country, and I had a – I had Morton Buildings, big barn building company, come in and build a really nice 60 by 50 barn with a really nice apartment in it. And we moved uh, into a, a barn apartment with an eight-month-old daughter. My mother-in-law, who's since passed, she's uh, from old world Germany. And I always forget, she she said, you're moving my granddaughter into a stable? I said, no, it's not a stable. It's a, it's a, I mean, we got granite counters in here. It's really nice. <laughs> So, so we, yeah, it was funny, and she was she spoke her mind for sure. But yeah, so we wound up in this barn apartment. And eventually, um, we started gardening, and you know we had Pasolfino horses and uh, chickens and dairy goats. And at that point, I really got into um, the local food movement. Um, I had kind of left the culinary business, and I thought I was going to become an insurance agent. And the first few days of doing that, sitting in the barn. I thought, what in the hell are you doing? You, I mean, zero passion or interest in insurance. So that went nowhere, and I said, well, I'm kind of unemployed at the moment. Why don't I uh, see if I can come up with a TV show? And I actually started working with the people that put together the Good Eats show on Food Network, and we uh, shot a pilot for the Food Network called My Family Table. And that really, it got some traction, but we weren't able to get on the Food Network, but Uh, we got some traction with um, PBS um, through American Public Television. We were producing a show for them. And then, um, you know, website HarvestEating.com sprang up around 2005. I was teaching people to cook on the Internet. And uh, eventually I wrote a cookbook called Harvest Eating, which is still, believe it or not, on Amazon. And, um, you know, the whole time learning about the, the farm-to-table movement And then, you know, after the cookbook came, I kind of was out doing a lot of touring, promoting the book. I had a publicist in New York City and an agent and the whole thing. And um, she would send me to things like the uh, Epcot Food and Wine Festival to promote my book and do cooking demonstrations and lectures. And 
I went to France. Um, I went, you know, all over the place to the New York Botanical Garden I and mean, you name it. I was there promoting my cookbook. And during that time, you know, that was right as the financial collapse happened. So it never really struck me to store food. That was a, an odd concept and nothing that I would, um, even consider. So, um, but when I was traveling, I, I thought, what, wait a minute, what if, what if, you know, this happens again with this financial situation? And that's what kind of has scared me the most, uh, up until this point. So I started going on the internet and I found this guy named Jack Spierko. <laughs> and I thought, well, that guy's a pretty strange redneck from Pennsylvania, but he's got some good, he's got some good things to, to learn about. So, um, you know, kind of went from there and was consuming your material and, Eventually, you and I uh, became friends, and I started to contribute to your show because I had uh, started to do some podcasting on my own. But I realized that I needed to store foods and just build a little more security into my life and into the family's lives. So that kind of started a journey of preparing and, um, you know, sort of living a life that's uh, less about um, fancy things and, you know, more about homesteading and all that. And since that time, you know, we've moved a few times. We went up to Montana for um, uh, just under two years, which turned out to be a really um, great thing. And if you remember, uh, you and I and Paul Wheaton had lunch in Missoula. Um, do you remember that, Jack? Yeah, absolutely. It was a long time ago, <laughs> but I remember it. <laughs> yeah, it sure was. But during that time, I met a guy named Noah, and he's uh, he still is an audio engineer for the Billy Graham Ministry travels all over the globe with them handling audio for video productions. And uh, I decided I wanted to write a course on food storage. And um, I needed a writer because after writing my cookbook, that was, oh, boy, was that a, I mean, it went really well. The book was successful. But the whole written part of it for me was just a giant pain in the neck. I loved the, you know, styling the food and all that. And the book has a lot of photos in it. But um, I met this guy, Noah, and I said, okay, if I'm going to do a food storage course with a lot of video in it, it needs to have written content. And I asked him if he'd be willing to help. And, you know, that was in 2016, and we published the course. And lots of people have taken the – are enrolled in it and use it and are in there all the time. And I knew it was good information back then. But, um, boy, since uh, this year, again, uh, as I mentioned to you off air, in September – um, I mean, a lot of things have happened, and I'm now the uh, director of food and beverage for uh, Sundance Mountain Resort in Utah, and our family's been living in Utah for three years now. My family lives in southern Utah in St. George area, which is uh, near Zion National Park, and uh, I work up north, and we travel back and forth to, to see each other, which is odd for me because I've always worked from home, but um, when I came to Utah, I was also doing consulting for one of the major food storage companies, they're called Emergency Essentials, and I made a lot of content and did a lot of consulting for them. But after Trump got elected, the food storage business, which boomed under Obama, <laughs> you know, so did ammunition and every other, uh, let's take back our liberty thing. <laughs> yeah, just real quick, a side note there. The first gun show I went to after Trump was elected, it was between like Christmas and New Year's of the election year. It was like a giant funeral. There yeah. were tons of people there, but no one was talking, no one was doing anything, and nobody was buying anything. It was like you walked in, and you're like, that's ah, a gun show. And you're like, 
This feels wrong. It just it just all fell apart. Anyway, please continue, but you just made me no, remember that. Yeah, you're exactly right. And uh, when I was um, working for this food storage company, they brought me on, and I didn't realize at the time that this was um, just a couple of months after Trump was elected, if I remember correctly. And they brought me on because they had they were owned by a big hedge fund in California, and they wanted. Uh, media and video and you know hey we better tell people how to use this storage food because they're buying it sitting on it not ordering anymore so that's when they brought me on and i was doing a lot of work for them and eventually i became pretty good friends with the people inside the company including the marketing director and he basically showed me uh what happened um to their sales i mean if you looked at it on the chart it's kind of looks like the chinese gdp after the wuhan virus just fell off a cliff but when on election night, their sales plummeted, and they were like, holy crap. And um, I kept working with them for six months after that, and finally they um, they basically were looking for a buyer. They were out of out of cash, and they, they eventually did find a, another buyer. But um, during that time, um, my resume has been online forever. I got a ping from one of the services that they were looking for this uh, food and beverage director. And, you know, I loved working in the ski industry before, and I thought, oh, I'm interested in that. And um, so I, I just kind of almost as a joke just hit hit the apply button. It was an automatic thing. And one thing led to another. And I wound up actually starting up there, you know, in a consultant position trying to, um, I don't want to say rescue, but fix a a food and beverage program that really was in need of some, some leadership. And uh, I've been there about 15 months now and things have gone really well. But during this time, I've, I've kind of watched what's happened, and I saw in um, early September when the Fed started pumping money into repo markets for bank liquidity, I thought, this is not a good thing. And, um, yeah, I, I really started to amp up the, the food that we stored. I mean, we had a lot of food stored before that because we've been regularly purchasing things. But, yeah, it's kind of um, kind of leads us to the, to the situation here with – with this virus and, and, uh, I've been watching what's happening since the very first, you know, minute that news, uh, came on about, you know, this strange pneumonia in Hubei province. And I knew right then, and I even told people at work, I said, this is, this is going to affect our business. And they, they literally laughed in my face. Literally, they broke down in, um, in, you know, heart busting laughter. And I thought, okay, you can laugh. So now uh, some of those people I just had to lay off. <laughs> so uh, things really move quickly. But yeah, here we are with a with a uh, with a global pandemic, and you know, as I mentioned to you just a few minutes ago, a, a financial system that's just being uh, completely pumped up with money. And you know, who the heck knows what's going to happen, Jack? Absolutely. Hey Keith, I want to pause here a second for a break. Um, okay. I just want to let you know I flaked out and didn't do it in the beginning. I have a big delivery coming from Lowe's today. They're sure. supposed to call two hours in advance before they do. I wholly expect that they are likely to call during the middle of this interview. If so, we'll just Not stop and I'll call you back. Uh, and then more likely they are to show up without calling. So yeah. either of those things happens, we'll have to jump off. So uh, we'll just pause about 10 seconds here so I have a break in the audio and I'll, I'll kind of ask you the next question. Okay. 
So anyway, man, it's it's great to kind of catch up with you on what you've been doing. I, I've always called you the the freaking, and maybe not the globe trotting chef, but you've been pretty much the country trotting chef for the past like ten, fifteen years. Been around a lot. Um, but in that time, you know, you mentioned you developed a food storage feast course. A lot of people from our audience have taken it. You have it available. We'll talk about the kind of the special offer to members uh, toward the end here. But let's kind of just move into the main subject today that goes along with that. Cooking from their stores. There's a lot of preppers that are like, you know, I can still go to the grocery store, and there's most of the stuff is still available. And but they're looking at all this stuff that they've stored. Some stuff they may have never used, uh, or they're able to get some things that maybe they're not accustomed to cooking with. So can we just kind of go into some ideas you have for, you know, cooking out of your storage or cooking with storables that maybe people are acquiring and then using for the first time or what have you? Yeah, no, that's a, it's certainly a great, great question because a lot of people have asked me through the years that are, that are interested in storing food, you know, what do I store and what, you know, what should I buy? And, you know, the advice is always, you know, try to stock up on things you already eat in their, you know, long-term stored form. So if you're a bread person, um, you know, buying wheat berries and, you know, putting them in buckets and mylar and oxygen absorbers, that kind of thing makes a lot of sense. And, um, then, you know, what about canned food? I mean, people that are eating lots of ethnic foods, beans and rice, um, Thai dishes, all that, they store that kind of food or they should be storing that kind of food. And, um, the one thing that I always advise against is I'm a firm believer in freeze dried foods. They're extremely expensive. But I only like the single ingredient ones, you know, like beef or chicken or vegetables or peas or green onions or celery, whatever it happens to be, because those are easily turned into other great meals. But when you get these um, uh, dehydrated sort of powdered uh, long-term storable meals, I mean, it really needs to be a grim time for you to break <laughs> that stuff out. I mean, it, it's got to be serious zombie apocalypse for for your kids to eat it and i've tried and tested a lot of these foods through the years and some of them are just really hard to eat so um, i always suggest you know trying to store the things that you like i mean one of the things here at our house is our kids are somewhat spoiled growing up with a chef they won't eat the only kind of bread they'll eat is if if we rarely like if we were to have hot dogs for instance which is probably a four times a year five times a year, maybe situation just because a hot dog bun is sort of specialized. They'll eat that. Hmm. But for everyday bit bread, they will not eat anything but our bread. So, um, and actually the bread recipe that we use, it's in the course. Um, it's a Pullman loaf and they eat that all the time. Um, so, you know, how do you make that right now? There's, you're screwed if you go to try to buy flour at this, you know, as I record this with you today, March 31st, um, there's no flour. I mean, I, uh, I saw one bag of flour in the last week in a very well stocked grocery store. So people that just are not on the ball with storing flour are kind of in trouble. We have been storing, um, wheat in the form of wheat berries. For those that don't know, flour is ground from a wheat berry, which looks, I don't know what the heck you would say. It looks like almost looks like a cumin seed, sort of a little thicker, but, those are, you know, you need a grinder to grind it into flour. And it, you know, does take a bit of work to get it done. But we store 
lots of weed. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I, I purchased, um, an additional 500 pounds of grain back in, I don't know, maybe it was the third week of October. And, uh, so we store that in buckets and, and I keep different varieties. Like I keep, um, hard red, uh, spring wheat, hard red winter wheat, soft white wheat, um, an ancient grain called spelt I keep. Uh, I also keep rye, which is, uh, is an excellent thing to have. It's, it's very cheap too to buy. So rye berries are cheap. Um, and we're not huge on corn, but we do, um, do make corn bread. One of the most popular dishes in the course is called, um, I don't know, like buttery, toasty corn bread. I, I forget the name, but we, um, we usually make it with organic cornmeal that we buy at the store, but there's not much of that either. So just the other day I took out, um, some of our, our corn and, um, and this is all non GMO uh, corn and the grains that I buy are all organic, uh, grains. I don't buy the, the kind that are, are sprayed with glyphosate. So we ground the corn fresh. And the, the thing that's interesting is when you're working with products that are, you know, in their fresh form and then you process them further, in this case, grinding, the resulting bread, I mean, it is night and day. Like if I, and I buy good, the best I can buy normally, like Bob's Red Mill organic stone ground flour or stone ground corn when I make this bread. And it's one of the kids' favorite. I mean, they have friends that come over, and sometimes before they come over, they ask if they ask our kids, "Has your dad made any cornbread?" Because they they love this stuff so much. And I made it with the with freshly ground corn from a you know dried kernels. I put them in my grain mill and you know by hand ground them down. And when I made the bread, I mean it was night and day. The amount that it rose, just the texture of it. So it really does make a difference. But it's a good example of. Um, storing the things that you're going to use and, you know, being a little crafty about it because you can't just have, um, you know, potato flakes. Now there's a place for potato flakes. I cook with potato flakes in the course. We do store potato flakes, but they don't store all that long. You've got to rotate through them. So these are just some of the, you know, dozens and dozens of, um, things that you need to think about when you're trying to put together a, a stored plan. Awesome, man. Um, let's talk a little bit about, too, like, so we, there, I have a friend right now who has a grinder, and they have relations several states away, and get this, because the people that are that far away were able to find some wheat, um, but they can't find a grinder right now. They're mailing the wheat to this friend of mine who grinds it into flour and sends it back to him. Wow. Pretty inefficient. Now, there are ways to use that wheat without a grinder. You want to talk maybe a little bit about how people can actually make, I mean, you know, peasants for a long time had used wheat as a staple storage, and it wasn't always ground into a flour. No, it's true. Um, one of the things that uh, I've made in the past is with wheat berries and also with um, oat groats, which I store those too, which is oatmeal in its whole form. Most people are used to seeing rolled oats, like old-fashioned oats, and the way that they do those is they take oat groats, which look extremely a little fatter than a wheat berry, but very similar in uh, size, and then they steam it, and then they roll it on a metal, uh, between two metal discs, essentially, and then it comes out as a rolled oat. Um, but in their whole form, steel-cut oatmeal can be made, and with wheat berries, I make an amazing, and it does take a little bit of time because you're cooking, um, you're cooking the whole berry, but I make a wheat berry cereal 
and I haven't made it in a few years, but it is really delicious. And it starts with um, bring, bringing water with a little bit of salt up to a boil, and you throw in your wheat berries, and then um, you need to cover them and simmer them for about 25 to 30 minutes for them to soften up. And then what I normally do is once they're at a texture I like, I'll drain them, and then I'll put them back in the pot and then add in a little bit of um, milk and butter and water and a little bit of sugar and then slowly cook those until and you have to stir them because that once they start to break down it starts to release some of the starch and the protein inside and it will thicken up and have a very nutty texture and I've given this to people and they're like oh my gosh what is this is there nuts in here I'm like no there's no nuts in there so it just takes on a really intense flavor and it's just another way um, to cook with uh, you know with a grain in its whole form and I mentioned the Oat groats, another thing that I'll do, which is a popular thing, well, not anymore, it used to be down in the south, is to, and also in parts of Ireland, is to toast the oat groats. So what I'll do is um, I'll take them and toast them in a pan, a dry pan. You know, let's say I'm going to make two cups of oats. I'll put them in a wide, like a 12-inch skillet on the stove, medium heat. You can't just let it sit there because they'll burn. you got to constantly agitate them. But you'll see in a minute or three or four or whatever, they'll take on a little toasty color. You do have to be careful not to burn them. And then when you're when you're done, you get them out of the pan. And now they've got a toasted texture. So you can let them cool off and store them in your pantry like that. Or you can then turn them into toasted oatmeal. Or you can grind them and make oat cakes. Or there's a recipe actually in the food storage feast of um, their oat scones, and I used uh, toasted oats, and also you can make a muesli with those, which is like a cereal, so you toast the oats, grind them, and then you know pour a little milk and sugar and leave them in the refrigerator overnight, and the next day, they soften up enough to where you don't even need to cook them anymore, and yeah, it's a nutty thing, but you add some fruit and some sliced almonds, maybe a couple of berries out of the garden if you have it. And all of a sudden, you're you're using things in a way that's uh, completely different than normal, but can make some really great results. Now, one of the things that I've been able to find available, and it, probably because I pay a little more attention to it, because some of the stuff I use myself, because I don't like I don't care that I can't get flour because I don't eat bread. I'm been keto for uh, about seven months now. But I'll use things like almond meal, uh, nut meals, things like that. And a lot of that stuff is still relatively available because people don't, you know, coconut flour, et cetera. People don't know what the hell they're do to do with it. You got anything for some of that stuff? Yeah, that's um, it's a great point. And, you know, I got to be the first one to admit that, you know, and there's a there's a time and place for using these high carb foods, obviously. You know, if you're in a crisis or if there's a food shortage or this type of scenario where you do need to dip into your stores, you know, maybe at that point people aren't overly concerned. With no, obviously, if you have, if that's what you have right now and you need to eat it, eat it. I'm not, I'm not picking on it. I'm just saying, like, you can get this other stuff. That's kind of oh, where I'm going, you know. No, you're totally right. And one of the things that um, we talked uh, earlier about some secret supplies, but um, I have a product that uh, – Boy, I made it a few years ago, and it, it got picked up by some supermarkets, and it's a vegan Parmesan cheese. You know, it's a play on words. There's no cheese in it, <laughs> but it's made with almonds. And so what I was doing is buying, and I still have 50 pounds of almond flour 
here at the house, but you can buy almond flour, you can buy coconut flour, you can buy all types of things that are lower in carbs and start using those. And, you know, for me, like I was going to mention is, you know, I'm kind of right in the same boat as you. I'm just not the type of person that can really, although I love them, carbs just do not like me. And, you know, if I eat a lot of bread or a lot of carbs, you know, inflammation, weird skin, that kind of thing will follow in days and weeks and joint pain and all that. So I, I've kind of gone the same path as you, you know, I did some paleo and yeah, I had some results with that. I kind of moved down the road into keto and was, you know, making those, um, you know, almond waffles and with cheese and all that. And there's so many great things that you can make. And I would make these little, uh, almond flour muffins and put poached eggs and bacon on there. And, and that was wonderful. And, um, slowly through my journey, I've, found that the more I amp up the fat um, and lower the carbs and basically eat more meat, the better I feel. So while I'm not a, a carnivore, because I had a slice of sourdough toast this morning, um, the more I eat like that, the better. And it's definitely affected the things that we're storing for sure. So, you know, if you have special dietary concerns, they can be met. You just have to be a little craftier about it. Absolutely. So how about another thing we could look at doing something with? Um, it's actually two things there, but we'll start with this one. So I've been kind of paying attention to what staples, especially non-refrigerated staples, people can get right now. Um, I hope that most people that have a lot of storage already stored up have done some thinking about what to do with what they have. But one of the things that like flew off the shelves in all the markets and all is pasta. Uh, dry pasta. And I think one of the reasons people have gravitated toward that, that are like the non-prepper people, Keith, is that you could get meat pretty easily right now, but the average person has a typical two-door refrigerator freezer, and they have a very small amount of storage for frozen meat. They're not me or you with a big chest freezer and a stand-up deep freezer and then another freezer, right? So they can only get so much of that. So when they're trying to get food to last in between trips... They're, they're buying things that, that don't refrigerate. So pasta disappeared. What I've seen is it's probably one of the easiest staples to make, and people are only going to buy so much of it before they're like, okay, I'm good. So it's something that in a lot of places you can get now. I just found a brand that I don't know that I would recommend it on a daily basis, but right now it's called Loro Del Sud, which I have no idea what that means, but... You can get 20-pound packs of it on uh, Amazon, arriving between April 3rd and April 9th. That's pretty good availability right now. So pasta is something people can get. Do you have any suggestions beyond dumping some tomato sauce on pasta to keep it interesting? Because that's another – and we're back to wheat, right? It's a wheat-based staple. Yeah, no, and I'm seeing that is a – and I know that brand. That's actually a pretty good brand. Okay. Um, it's made in Italy. Uh, not that that necessarily means it's better, but the thing that does, you know, if in good times when you're looking for pasta, try to buy pasta that says that it's made um, through a bronze dye. That's going to be the best pasta because pastas, most pastas are extruded through what they call a dye, which is a chunk of metal with different shapes engineered in it. And what when the pasta gets forced through it, it uh, takes on the shape. So if you can buy buy ones that have a bronze dye. You have a much better texture in the pasta than a steel dye. That's just something for people to to know. But, yeah, um, we keep a lot of um, – one of the things that we definitely store a lot of is canned tomatoes. 
in all their their in all their glory. You know, everything from whole peel to diced, and then a lot of petite diced tomatoes. And so, a really super simple. You know, people will go out and they'll spend money on jarred pasta sauce. And trust me, uh, I know a thing about it because I've had several big, big brands of um, pasta sauce in the marketplace that have done well. And you know, it's it's expensive when you manufacture pasta sauce, and people are paying eight and ten bucks a jar for it. But you can buy the equivalent amount of tomatoes for you know a dollar and a half, if that. So really simple recipe. And it can be any shape of tomato. I mean, for for me, what I'll do is take two 28-ounce cans of whole peeled, you know, Italian-style tomatoes. If I've got San Marzano's, great. But if not, I don't worry about it. I throw those into a sauce pot with a half of an onion. I don't even – I just peel the oven uh, onion, cut it in half, throw it in there. I'll throw in two garlic cloves, about a half a stick of butter, which we store a lot of butter in the freezer, and about four teaspoons of salt. And then I'll put a lid on that, put it on a medium-low heat, and leave it for 45 minutes. After 45 minutes, I take the lid off. I'll let it cook another 10 or 12 minutes and then either throw it in the Vitamix or put a stick blender in there. And this sort of butter and onion pasta sauce is is kind of a miracle in my opinion. And if you want to jazz it up, a couple of – like a pinch of um, red pepper flakes is really great. Now, that is a simple way to to dress some pasta. Another thing that we do – Again, that I've made for kids and friends, and they just they freak out about it. Now, this does take um, a little bit of fresh ingredients, so you would need garlic and parsley. And garlic is extremely easy to grow. Um, you can also freeze garlic, which we do. We buy California garlic cloves that are peeled. It's a Christopher Ranch brand that I learned about from my pasta sauce uh, business because that's what we use. And we freeze those bags. And the texture gets a little strange, but... It's perfectly fine to cook with. So we'll go in and I'll take out frozen garlic and then um, fresh parsley. And I make um, this dish with pasta. And there's so few things in it. But when people try it, I actually served it about five days ago to um, my daughter's sort of boyfriend, which I'm still dealing with grasping with that term um, because my daughter went from being in diapers to having a boyfriend. So that's a struggle. But anyway, he... um, he tried it the other day, and he, he was, I mean, this guy's eyes jumped out of his head because it looks like plain pasta, but it's basically, you know, you cook spaghetti, but in the pan about 15 minutes ahead of time, a little, a little olive oil, which we store plenty of, goes down in a cold pan. So olive oil in a cold pan, you turn it up to a medium, well, medium-low heat, and then I'll put around seven cloves of garlic. So I'll take them out, I'll let them defrost, and I'll slice them with a knife. Um, to, in thin slices, and I'll toss them in there. And you can cook those for 25 minutes on a low heat, and they do not burn. If it's too hot, they'll burn instantly, and the whole dish is ruined. So you have to start out with a cold pan, cold oil, throw the garlic in there, and then just bring it up slowly. And you let it cook for 10 or 15 minutes. This isn't something you can walk away from. Eventually, it's going to start to take on a little bit of color. And at that point, right in back of that pan on the stove, you're going to be cooking your spaghetti, and you want your spaghetti, of course, cooked al dente, which means not all the way through. What you'll do is you want to stop the cooking of the oil and the garlic, so you'll take a ladle full of the pasta water, which is going to have a lot of starch in it, which helps to create a little bit of a sauce, and you'll pour you know, half a ladle, maybe two, three, four ounces 
of that pasta water into the pan that you're cooking the garlic in, and all of a sudden that'll stop the cooking, and then when you're just let it keep going, when the noodles are done, they go right from the water into the pan, and then I will put on a big, you know, uh, maybe about a half a cup of minced, finely minced parsley. Dump that in there, about a half a cup of, um, you know, Pecorino Romano or even some um, just Parmesan cheese, salt and pepper, a couple pepper flakes. And you toss this whole thing together and that oil picks up so much garlic flavor. And then when you have that amazing flat leaf parsley in there and the Parmesan cheese, you toss that around, you put it on a plate. It basically looks like pasta and it's flecked with a lot of green. People are like, mm, I don't know, because they're used to seeing it just lathered with red sauce. But when you try that, Jack, it is it's one of the best. I think it is the most popular pasta preparation in Italy, and for good reason. I mean, it is so simple with so few ingredients, but it's just magic in the mouth. So, Well, see, what you just gave was a template there, right? Because you can then take that and you can change, the, like, the green contribution. I do almost, almost, not exactly, but almost the exact same thing. Um, I'll use some butter in it as well, though, toward the end of browning the, the garlic to bring up the brown a little bit and put some nutty flavor in it. And then I'll, instead of using parsley, I'll use arugula and bring that sharp bite of the arugula in there. Uh, or that. use fresh basil, but use that way toward the end so you don't blow it out. Um, Swiss chard is good. Spinach is good. Like all of the different greens give, like, you can almost cook that with a different noodle shape and a different green two days in a row, and it's two totally different things. No, I totally agree. And, I, and I've actually made that same dish like you said um and i've used uh swiss chard so i'll wash and it was like rainbow swiss chard that we oh, got yeah. a, a local market is beautiful but i washed it really carefully and then took out the ribs and i finally shredded it with my chef's knife into you know like ribbons and i tossed that in there before the pasta went in there and that was that was awesome and you're totally on board with that because that little slightly bitter flavor in there i mean that's one thing that italians love are bitter, bitter. greens well, and you see, so. any kind of pasta has a sweetness to it, so you're contrasting bitter and sweet. Like the other thing with that shard, like so if you take all the leaf off of those ribs, then chop those ribs into like bite-sized pieces, throw them down with your garlic, soften them, then go to your noodles, then bring the shard greens back in because the ribs can handle a lot more cooking, and it's another texture, it's another layer of flavor. Like there's there's so much you can do with pasta. It's like one of the things I actually miss on keto, I don't miss much, <laughs> yeah. but that kind of pasta, because I know how, I know so many things I can do with that. And, you know, I, you, I know you've been doing other things, but we've been real busy on teaching people about hydroponics lately. And greens are what you can grow fast. I mean, I can take arugula from seed to harvest in like 22, 23 days. Right. Yeah, so you cool. can take that arugula and that fresh arugula that, you know, when you're going to make this pasta, you could literally wait until the, uh, the the noodles have gone into the pan and then go grab the arugula and have it like you, you just murdered it three seconds before it goes in the pan and have it that fresh. Or the same with basil. Uh, basil and arugula, why not both like the Taco Bell girl says, you know. Like there's so much you can do with that. So I'm going to actually link, I just found this on Amazon while you were talking, and I'm thinking, like, what what do you think you can't get that you can? So I'm going to link to this pasta brand for people, and I'm sure there's other ones. And if you've already gone out and raked the shelves of it, 
you know, use some of the ideas Keith and I have. And maybe you can even drag this back into pasta or do some other things with it. The other thing we have, right, is tons of preppers in this audience that have some version of backyard poultry. Chickens, quail, ducks, you name it. I'm I'm selling duck eggs like crazy right now. Like no one's complaining. All of a sudden, nobody complains about the price. We're still keeping plenty for ourselves. You mentioned kind of the uh, the almond flour waffles. I call them chaffles. I think that's what most people call them. And that's egg and cheese and some almond flour on the little um, waffle iron. We make those. We put microgreens on them. We put salad on them. We do cream cheese, all kinds of stuff. But you got anything like maybe taking eggs other than you know. Um, fried, scrambled, boiled, like some other ideas for eggs. Because, man, that's a high-protein, high-value food that a lot of our audience has in abundance. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And, and I think what I pulled from what you were saying with the pasta, and then I'll kind of get to the, yeah. to the eggs, which is a great point, is so you mentioned – um, you know, putting some microgreens in there or now, now you're talking about some eggs. And th this is the mindset that I think people should kind of get into. Now, while we store foods and some of them are carbohydrates, some of them maybe canned, whatever, um, the idea is if you're doing some homesteading and you're, you know, learning about hydroponics from Jack or you're doing a little gardening, I mean, I know I'd love to know the number. I bet you there's hundreds of people that have gotten into ducks because of um, the work you've done. So having a little source of protein or greens or, or anything from the garden mixed into your food storage really makes the whole thing so much more dynamic. And that's what I've tried to do in the course is it's not just straight, you know, storage food. I do mix in some little bits of fresh things here that could be available. Um, but to your point about eggs, it's, it's so true. And, you know, if you're somebody that is looking at a more lower-carb diet and trying to be more self-sufficient, I mean, Jack's got a ton of resources on ducks, and duck eggs are kind of like the – they're. I mean, I like chicken eggs, but duck eggs are way better. So if you have a good source of eggs, um, I mean, you, you can live on eggs just, just by themselves with a few greens, and you'd be probably good to go, but – um, one of the things I love to make with eggs, and I don't always make it. Actually, I rarely will make it for breakfast. Sometimes I make it for dinner or lunch, and it's uh, it's one of the simplest things. And most of, in my opinion, the greatest recipes. And and uh, this is somebody who, uh, on our resort, we have a Forbes four star restaurant where we make some of the best food in all of Utah. We're we're always considered either the top one or two restaurants in Utah. Very very super fresh ultra plated modern food and it's wonderful but for me some of the peasant style dishes that come from um, different cultures needing to use things up those to me are some of the most exciting so there's a dish that comes from mexico and i've heard it called different things but i call it migas so m-a-g-a-s um, and migas basically are scrambled eggs with tortilla chips which can be or any kind of um uh, you know, it can be it can be tortilla chips or corn tortillas is what they would use in Mexico because when they make a bunch for dinner, there's always some left over because it's sort of that culture of you know not wanting to waste yep. instead of throwing those out, those are cut up and they'll be fried and turned into something else. So I'll make migas and sometimes I'll fry um, corn tortillas and make them from my own um, masa. But other times, if I feel super lazy, I'll just go grab some organic um, tortilla chips. So what I'll do is take some eggs, whip them together, 
And I usually have some type of a pico de gallo, which can be easily made with canned tomatoes. There's a recipe for that on Food Storage Feast. And um, this is a simple little salsa and maybe some crema. So you've got just a few ingredients here. You've got tortillas, scrambled eggs, a salsa, some crema, and maybe some um, maybe a Mexican crumbling cheese. And these are things that we freeze those little blocks of queso fresco, and we have those in the freezer, and those are perfectly wonderful um, when you defrost them. And that's that crumbling cheese. You don't necessarily have to use that kind, but any kind of cheese is going to work well. And basically what I do is I'll turn the um, uh, turn on a skillet, and I'll put in a either a little butter or a little bit of olive oil, and I'll start to saute maybe some white onion, throw in a few white onions, green onions, um, and then start that going. I'll toss that salsa in there um, and just cook it for a minute or so. Then the scrambled eggs will go in. I'll put in um, whatever cheese I'm using, so a good handful of cheese. Mix the whole thing around in a big wide skillet, and then a handful of corn tortillas that are either fresh ones that have been fried or, heck, right out of the bag. Just give them a quick crunch with your hands, toss them in there, toss this whole thing around, some fresh cilantro. And this dish to me, I mean, I made it less than a week ago. I mean, for me, I'm obsessed with food, of course, but I can't stop thinking about it. And and, um, this morning I made sourdough pancakes for the kids, but I really wish I would have made the migas. But that's a that's a way to use a little bit of fresh stuff, some eggs, some cheese, and to come up with a preparation, again, to your point, yeah, scrambled eggs, fried eggs, it can get boring. But you get this dish of migas with all these colors, these textures, these flavors, squeeze a little bit of lime over it. It's heavenly, i got to tell you. Cool, man. I mean, I think that's that's some really great advice there as well. Like, we're, we've been on for like 40 minutes now, so we're kind of getting there. You want to, got anything else you want to talk about before we just kind of give people the advice to, uh, to check out your course and the, and the deal they can get on it? Any other items they might consider using or, uh, maybe getting their hands on or, or what have you and, and how they can utilize them? Sure. Well, one thing, again, I think that people need to make sure, um, that they have their basics covered with, with carbohydrates, wheats, oats, um, pasta, rice, that kind of thing. But also um, making sure that you've got plenty of fats on hand. And things like lard, I mean, you can take lard and it just you can just leave it, you know, in a cool place. It doesn't need to be refrigerated. It's perfectly shelf-stable. But making sure that you've got these fats stored. So we store quite a bit of lard, quite a bit of butter, and we do keep the butter uh, frozen. So, and then oils. Um, we keep quite a bit of olive oil and then other non-GMO oils like safflower uh, or sunflower, those type of oils we will store because you always need fats um, to make sure that you're uh, staying, you know, satiated, particularly if you're having to eat less food. I mean, one of the strategies that I do lately is I'll do a, a fast where I will eat my last meal about six at night then I won't eat again until noon the next day. And I can go that, that distance, you know, I'll have my coffee in the morning and I'm totally fine, but then I'll want a nice high fat meal. So another thing that I like to make is I'll buy, um, pork whenever I can get it from, I mean, there's people that have heritage hogs. So I'll always try to fill the freezer with some of that heritage beef. And I make something called riettes. You and I have talked about that in the past. And riettes is a French preparation 
Um, and you can have different types of riettes, duck riettes, um, you know, salmon riettes, pork riettes, but it's basically slow cooked pork that's seasoned. It's got herbs in it, a little bit of wine, different, um, things like clove and parsley, all kinds of, um, seasonings. And then when it's all done, it's shredded and then mixed with fat. So typically a great thing to do to use would be duck fat. And again, those of you that are going to get into duck, um, care you'll have duck fat if you can learn to render it down the stuff is gold it's another thing that we do store in jars is duck fat but you mix duck fat into this thing and and what you wind up with and you can pot it so it's, it's considered a potted meat once it's all cooked you can put it in clean jars um, press it down and put um, melted um, lard or duck fat over the top of it and that stuff will store in the refrigerator a good long time and those type of things while it's not something you're going to go out and buy, but if you're kind of regularly thinking like that, that makes an amazing snack food that you can put on crusty bread, on a chip, on anything. And it, you don't need a lot of it. It's, it's got such a high caloric count and it's got so much flavor in it that those are the type of things that really are amazing to, um, to cook with and to have on hand, uh, particularly if you're trying to, you know, not eat as many carbs. I mean, some of the other things that, We've been storing too, which isn't, you know, a gourmet food, but we, we have like smoked ham in cans. And, uh, so canned smoked ham, you can do a lot of different things with that. Um, but that's something that is just, uh, it, it's good to have on hand. And if you look at the course, there's a lot of different recommendations and how we break it down is typically, you know, there's a section on rice, on beans, on wheat, on, corn um salt cod is another thing that you can buy you know not in most in some supermarkets if they're higher end if you go to the fish market you'll see salt cod they sell it in a wooden box typically it's coming from portugal places that are um, used to canning a lot of fish sardines and all that um but that is a really great food to, to have on hand it lasts just about forever so salted cod, you can buy it out on Amazon usually. Also, sardines are something super great to have. Canned sardines last a long time. And these are the foods that I think people overlook. But, I mean, just some of that stuff can make amazing foods, and, and people should definitely consider storing it. Yeah, I think the fat thing is something that it's interesting to me that we're kind of learning what our grandparents knew. Um, somebody had a meme, and it was an old lady outside, you know, raking her garden up, and it, it said, "You're America, you're about to learn why your grandma saved her bacon grease and washed her aluminum foil. And, and there's some real truth to there. I've always saved my bacon grease, and I am not to the level of washing aluminum foil yet, even though my grandmother did. But I'm big on saving any high-quality fats. Like, one of the things we do a lot with is pastured poultry, and I will take a lot of skin off certain cuts of that. I generally cook my leg and thigh and wing with skin on, but I generally do the breast skin off, and I will generally take my cores for making stock, and I'll take all the skin off the back. Well, I take all that skin, and I put it into bags, uh, because usually you don't get enough skin off of one chicken to do the kind of thing that I'm talking about doing, because it's making wonderful, delicious chicken chips. But then I'll take those chicken chips, and I'll, I'll put them on a... Uh, like the kind of rack you use to cool cookies, right? Yep. I, those nest perfectly into a half-sheet pan, right? So you nest that into your half-sheet pan. You put some foil down there so you don't have to clean the half-sheet pan. 
and you spread your chicken uh, skins out on that, and you bake those in the oven for 20, 25 minutes. So that renders a lot of the fat out of them. Well, I save that fat. It's pastured poultry. It's like the highest quality fat in the world. And then you've got another source of fat that you can cook with. Um, I've never made it, but I know like a Jewish thing is called schmutz or schmatz or something like that that's made from chicken fat, kind of like rillets you were talking about using duck fat for, um, similar to that. But we just use it for cooking. And then we'll take those chicken skins that have already had that much fat rendered out of them, and I'll throw them like in a fry pan and crisp them. Because now they'll crisp a lot faster because a lot of that fat's been rendered out of them. Like, that's another way to, like, harvest fat. And then that fat, you know, if you eat potatoes, which we don't eat many of, but, like, fry vegetables or potatoes in that chicken fat. I mean, it's, yeah. And it's so simple, and everybody throws it away. And I've even found, like, when I realize this, I'm like, can you, like, buy chicken skin? And, and it, with all the shit going on right now, I'm not doing it. But turns out you can, and it's cheap. Because I started seeing restaurants making these, you know, versions of chicken skins. And I'm like, huh. Well, obviously, they're not outskinning chickens. Like, restaurants don't have time for that crap, right? So, like, if they're going to sell 100 cups of chicken skins a night, you know, in a restaurant, they can't be, they don't have time for that. So, yeah, it turns out there's, like, supply stores that sell chicken skin. So, like, that's a whole other source of fat. And, man, it's like chicharrones made out of a chicken. You know, I mean, there's so much we can do like that with harvesting parts that we generally throw away. And then if you're throwing away chicken cores, I think you're being wasteful. And if you're doing it during a pandemic with a food shortage, I think you're being stupid. Like chicken cores and chicken stock, like want to maybe finish up. That's a good place to finish up with some things you can do as far as making chicken stock and like using it to do things. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great point. I love I love that. I mean, just this morning. Um, I made breakfast for the kids. It was sourdough pancakes, and then I, I had a couple of potatoes, and I cut them up. And of course, my wife's like, "Potatoes with pancakes?" I'm like, uh, "I don't know why I did that." <laughs> but I um, I cooked, so I diced up the potatoes, cooked them in a in a big open um, blue steel pan with a little bit of salt, and and those things are very nonstick. And I waited until they got nice and crispy, and then sitting right there on the stove was uh, rendered bacon fat oh, yeah. that um, I save every little scrap of that, and also I keep duck fat out on the counter, and I'll just add a teaspoon of that and toss it around. I mean, it is, it's magic, but your point to the to the bones, I mean, I'll go um, and buy, I'll go to these farms, and a lot of farms nowadays, ones that are staying in business anyway, they'll have a farm store, and if they're raising um, poultry or, or cows or milk or whatever, you know, you can buy cuts of beef from them. And I was at this place, I don't know, maybe two months ago and I bought, they sold raw milk, which I really like. So I bought raw milk from them, but they also had freezers full of parts. I mean, they have a butcher shop right there. So the bones were like dirt cheap. So I could buy oxtails, um, uh, knuckles, all kinds of you know, shin bones, these things that are just magic. I mean, they are culinary magic. And, you know, you were talking about the value of fat, but these things are so valuable to have on hand, and you can do so much uh, with these things. And, you know, with chicken, I mean, you collect, if you're the person that's smart, instead of buying um, cuts of chicken that are prepackaged, you buy the whole chicken. It's way less money. And you're going to wind up with a bunch of skin that you can render into fat and store, You'll wind up 
with the, you know, the whole carcass, the chicken back, those things are incredible. And what I'll do with those is, um, and it, it depends. Sometimes it's beef, sometimes it's chicken, but I will put in, you know, four or five, um, well, maybe it's two or three pounds of bones. And if I can find marrow bones, all the better. I'll put those in there with um, cold filtered water and I'll save scraps of vegetables. So the other day I made a leek and potato soup. Um, that, that's actually in the course as well. And that was incredible. I gave some to my 72 year old neighbor and he about dropped dead. He was like, that's the best soup I've ever eaten. But those green parts from the leeks that I don't put in the soup, I just store all that stuff in a bag in the refrigerator, all the onion trimmings, the peels from carrots. To your point, um, we don't want to waste things, stuff in good times and we certainly don't want to be idiots and throw it out now. So all those things and all those techniques that grandma knew, uh, they were onto something. They just came through the Great Depression. They, they understand the value of food. So those type of things go into the pot with a few peppercorns and I will bring that to um, a teeny barely simmer and I'll let that thing cook sometimes for 12 hours. And what you get from that is such amazing bone broth that can be used in a ton of different ways. I mean, we take that bone broth and we will just make a, like a sipping broth out of it. So once it's cooked, I'll filter it and I will put a whole mess of minced fresh chives in it, maybe smash a garlic clove and just simmer it in there. And then that's like a, a pre-dinner, um, you know, we'll serve it in a little bowl and it's got a lot of flavor. And then you can use that um, broth for all kinds of things to make vegetable soups. If you were to make risotto with stored rice, you've got amazing stock. There's a lot of different ways to use those. They can be reduced down into what we call jus in the restaurant. And you make a grilled meat and you take, you know, a very, I mean, it's not quite a demi, but it's a, it's a jus, so a very thickened, reduced broth of either chicken or, I mean, any type of protein makes a great sauce. So there are lots of ways to use those sort of things. Um, and I definitely, you know, advise people to buy the parts that others don't because, you know, the, the folks that are just buying T-bones and ribeyes and none of the other things, they are, they're missing out. The other night we had some, um, shoulder, they call it like shoulder flap meat and it's, got a lot of grain structure in it. It's got a lot of fat in it. Most people don't know what to do with it. If you cut it against the grain into strips, I cooked it out on the uh, side burner of the grill the other night with a little bit of um, rendered duck fat and some herbs that I keep in the pantry. It turned into some amazing you know, fajita meat. But this is a, the cut of beef that they can hardly give away in the store because it doesn't look like everybody wants. I mean, um, and now our store, you can't even get any beef from the, you know, the, what would you call it, the beef case. It's closed because of COVID-19. So everything you have to get is prepackaged like that's somehow uh, less danger, I guess. But um, learn to buy those cheaper cuts because they're often more nutritious anyway. And a good source of fat is is critical. I mean, you can you can live on good sources of fat. And I would encourage people to um, start to think more like that. Awesome, man. So tell people a little bit about your course and uh, what the, spe you know, they'll give away the discount code on, on the air, but the, the, the special deal that we have for uh, MSB members as well with that. Sure. So the, the course is called Food Storage Feast. 
you can just follow that link, foodstoragefeast.com. It'll take you over to the course. And the course is made up of a lot of different written material and modules, so you can learn about each ingredient. And then there's recipes in there. There's close to 60 um, videos showing how to make the food. And um, while I do have a lot of experience in culinary video, you know, where I'm on the camera and it's the whole TV show thing, this was shot differently. It's typically just from my elbows down. So you're focused on the food and the exact preparations. And I take people through and show them how to make everything. So the course is pretty voluminous. There's a lot of information there. It was published in 2016. So uh, MSB members need to go into um, their MSB section of the survival podcast. And then where it says benefits on the left side, there's a link. It just says Chef Keith and there's information about the course and there's a a link there that takes you over and there's a coupon code that you'll need. That's going to save you 70 bucks off the top of the course. I'm also going to give a coupon code over the air today for a $50 savings for just regular listeners. And that's the coupon code will be Jack. So if you go okay. to food storage, food storage feast.com, you look it over, there's lots of videos and stuff on there to check out. If you decide to enroll, just use coupon code Jack. You can save 50 bucks, but MSB saves even more. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you taking time off from the apocalypse to be with us today, Keith. And uh, I'm sure folks will be checking out uh, Food Storage Feast. It's a, it's a great course. Uh, you put a lot of work into it, and it shows. And, and, again, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, Jack, it's always great to be on. It's nice to talk to you. And uh, I hope everybody out there has a great day, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Really enjoyed having Keith on today. Um, I'll tell you that we did catch up with each other for at least 15 minutes before we started the show because he just is a good friend, uh, not only of the community, but to me personally. And I just think he's an awesome dude. And, again, I appreciate him being with us today. Remember, foodstoragefeast.com. You can find his course there. Uh, everybody can get uh, 50 bucks off with discount code JACK for about a week. And MSB members can always get 70 bucks off, which uh, – You know, right now with MSB being $25 a year on sale, that means that right there pays for, for what, almost three years. That's right. You can get MSB right now. And so I'm going to become a member of the Survival Podcast uh, members program for 25 bucks for life, locking in that rate uh, for the duration of the, these lockdowns. When they stop locking us down, I'll take the price. So it's 25 bucks is the discount code. That's 25BUCKS, 25 bucks. I think I'm kind of crazy for making that commitment, but now that I made it, you guys know me. I'm going to keep it. $25 bucks is the discount code. That'll get you disc, uh, membership for $25. And if you're going to get this course, it's $70 bucks off. I mean, that's stacking and, stacking and racking right there. Anyway, um, again, foodstoragefeast.com. You can check it out. And I think you can see some sample videos and stuff and get a uh, feeling for what it's like. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Um, I've been having a hard time coming up with items to add to tspaz.com for you. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. This is where if you do any of your online shopping through tspaz, you will help us out no matter what you buy, as long as you start there. But I try to review products for you, and a lot of things are limited availability. I think I might be doing this uh, Laura Del Sud pasta as an item of the day tomorrow, just because some people need bulk food and the fact you got to buy 20 packs and like they're not mix and match but you know and it's a little expensive but 65 bucks for 20 pounds of pasta right now that's pretty cool but that's not what i have for you today um i have a digital pocket scale i i've been leaving this one out of all the stuff that i recommend for hydroponics the one that i recommend is by a company called greater goods digital 
uh, and they make the, a digital pocket scale. And it is 10 bucks. And I am very impressed with it. I use it for measuring my master blend. I would use it for kind of um, reload, not uh, you know, like pocket reloading. Like you sit out on the bench and use a lee loader to do you know manual reloading uh, a few rounds at a time. I would use. I wouldn't make it a dedicated reloading scale, but I've tested it using bullets, which generally weigh what they say they weigh from 35 grains up to 405 grains, and I have only found one or two here and there that are off by a grain. And bullets sometimes are off by a grain. Precision reloaders will use a scale like this to cull out some of the less, better quality controlled bullets. So I am really convinced this thing is accurate. So why recommend two if this thing's only $10 bucks and it's so accurate? Well, the problem is that right now you're not going to get it till after the 20th. And if you're doing hydroponics and you need something much quicker like this week, I also recommend one called the American Way Scale, AWS 100. It's a very similar scale. It's like a buck less, but I've never used it. But I'm going to tell you for you know mixing master blend or whatever, since you're going to use an EC meter anyway, it's going to be accurate enough. And when you get it, you can test it. If you if you reload, go get yourself a 40 grain 22 caliber bullet, stick it on there, and set it to grains. See what it weighs. If it sucks, send it back to Amazon. It's only eight bucks. Um, I would definitely recommend the Greater Good one over the AWS because 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 I own that other one and I know how good it is. But my guess is that they're both really good. They both have fairly good reviews. Uh, they seem quite equivalent. And again, it's a low-cost item. Remember, you can help support the Survival Podcast uh, when you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy. That brings us to our song of the day today, and it's Street Fighting Man by the Rolling Stones. This song was actually born out of the violence and the demonstrations that were going on in the streets in Europe, Uh, and the United States in the year 1968, kind of the, the apex of the buildup of the resistance against the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement coming to a head kind of together. And I think sometimes we look around our country today and we are spoiled by the fact that, honest to God, the last 30 years have been pretty easy. Those of us that are old enough to remember like the early 80s, late 70s, remember when times were still kind of tough? Remember when the, the, the problem of racism was a hell of a lot bigger of a problem than it is today, and it was right out on the surface. Um, people are complaining about sexism today. Again, most of them are uh, way too, way, way, way too, uh, too young to remember when there was a real problem. So what does that all have to do with the situation that we're in right now? I mean... Civil rights protests, anti-war protests, conflict, recession. I mean, it doesn't sound a lot like 2020 global pandemic, does it? The, the, the similarity is adversity. Uh, people are talking like this is the end of everything. We've been through worse. We'll go through worse. Most of you will see worse times in your life. The younger you are, the more odds there are that you will. You'll see worse than this. It's going to be all right. This too shall pass. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.